Children, do you have any fish? No. Cast your net on the right side, and you'll find fish. Let us pray. Almighty, we pray for everyone this evening who will utter, their utter from their mouth or sing from their hearts that the lips and the hearts of all of those would be purged that your spirit would be the only voice heard here tonight. In the name of Jesus, amen. You are here tonight because of two men who had an amazing vision. One of those men, his name was Henry Michel. Henry, Henry Michel was an evangelist in Switzerland and in North America in the early 20th century. He and another brother had a vision of creating a camp, a retreat for our denomination. And they moved forward with that amazing vision and you are here tonight because of that vision. Henry Michel, the evangelist, later in his life, at the first camp in Bloomington, Illinois in 1947, was asked to share a little history of our faith. He talked about that history and how it began so long ago by a, a man we all recognize as Froelich, Samuel. And he referred to him and his work many times in a small booklet that he ended up writing, and I encourage you all to read it someday soon. It's called, I Will Remember the Works of the Lord, printed in 1947. He challenged the church in explaining the history of their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers who had labored to bring forth the word of God not only in Europe, but eventually emigrating to the United States. And in the mid to late 1800s, along came those who emigrated, those farmers, those small business owners scattered across the land. And there were times of the year, especially the, for the farmers, after the harvest, that they would leave their families and they would travel for weeks and months from city to city, town to town, house to house, preaching the word of God. It's recorded that those who own small businesses would hang a sign in their windows, gone for three or four months to preach the gospel. That is your heritage. But there were some things he had to challenge the church that was gathered together in Bloomington, Illinois in 1947. And bear with me as I read just a few sentences to give you his heart on the matter and the explanation of the history that he had just given and his concerns for the future. He wrote, 
and said at that time, and after a while, congregations having been formed, they were enjoying themselves in singing hymns and working hard. But the missionary work had been forgotten. We know how many congregations exist, and we are thankful, but we do not care so much to expand, he wrote. We have a beautiful hymn, Where is the spirit of all these pioneers who filled with the love of God and the love of Christ and who had the passion for the souls and who wanted to bring the good tidings of peace to others? A time came, the same on the other side of the ocean as here, as soon as the persecution ended in Europe, the people settled in. He left that, that meeting that evening with this challenge. May the Lord give us the needed joy, the needed zeal, and the needed wisdom that in these last days, in such a wicked world, in such a darkness, in such confusion exists in the whole world. In the midst of all of this, the Lord grant that we be joyful witnesses of Jesus, our Savior, who died on the cross. Amen. Henry Michel. Not yesterday. Forty, I'm sorry, 72 years ago. 72 years ago. I didn't read it, but he asked, he made a plea. Recognizing that after the churches had been established, there was not so much care anymore to expand or to grow the church. You see, they had settled in, which is exactly the opposite of go ye. Brothers and sisters of the apostolic Christian denomination, we are still settled in. Comfortable, isn't it? We work hard. We play harder. We are settled in. We enjoy the singing and the hymns that Henry Michelle spoke about. We built our churches around that area which makes us so comfortable. We make the programming so that we feel comfortable. We have settled in. They settled in. We are still settled in. I did a little research. I've been long enough, here long enough on this earth to have seen the pinnacle, the peak of the growth of the Apostolic Christian Church in North America. I saw the highest numbers. I lived at that time. What happened between 1947 and my arrival in 57? That was a time when World War II had just recently ended. The soldiers had come back. 
I'm a part of the baby boomers. Families were still getting together after the war in America, North America for that matter, and families were happening and growing, and the churches were actually prospering. Not because they were evangelizing, they were having nice big families, and the church was counting on them, those large families, to keep the numbers coming. It didn't happen. It peaked in or around 1975. The families got smaller. Not so many 10, 12 family, children families. Not, not so much anymore. All of a sudden, those numbers seem to be two, three, four. And at that time in 1975, 76, our denomination had roughly 3,600 members across North America. Today, 2,900-ish. Samuel Froelich, in 30 years, established 100 churches. In the last 40, we've probably closed at least 12. And our numbers are down by 25 to 30%. What is wrong with this picture? The trend is not our friend. If we don't change, if we don't do things differently, where will this congregation, this denomination be 40 years from now if God tarries? We have to change. We have to be different. Change is not a four-letter word. I know that's uncomfortable. Change is not a four-letter word. Brother Gibb, on Sunday evening, talked about discomfort. And he said God does his best work, much of his best work, when we are uncomfortable. Change makes us uncomfortable sometimes because our fear is we don't know what the end might be when we start to change something at a particular time. We're always looking at what's going to happen next. We can't, we can't see that far ahead. You know what I would like to encourage you to think about for a moment? Where is your faith exactly? If a term, if a, a word like change gives you some heartburn, gives you some discomfort, I would like to ask you, where is your faith? Is the faith you have grounded in your comfort? Is your faith grounded in your your church, your, your practices in your church, uh, the way you conduct your services, the music that, that you allow to take place, is that where your comfort is? Or do you have faith? Times have changed. The biggest change we all make in our lives 
is the born-again change. Think about that for a moment. On one hand, we are afraid of change. We are afraid of being different. On the other hand, the most important change we ever make is that which is the born-again experience. And do we then think that once we have experienced that born-again amazing change in our lives, that that is it? We have arrived. We are comfortable now. That's not it at all. If there is no change in us after our conversion, there is no growth, and I mean none. We cannot become more conformed to the image of Christ Jesus, our Lord, if we do not make change, allow change to take place in us, help us to grow and prosper. Don't be afraid of the word change. Embrace it, love it, implement it, because we must, if we are to become more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and more effective, and that's what I really want to get to, in his service. Are you settled in? Still, I am. I have not apprehended that which I'm speaking about this evening. I have not accomplished it. I have not succeeded in it. Because when you are settled in, you are not accomplishing much of anything. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3, we read, If our gospel, but if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost. But if our gospel is hid... It is hid to them that are lost. Do you care? The most important thing that we have to change is our hearts. Our hearts must change. I ask myself, is my first love for the lost still there? Maybe I should ask myself, was my first love for the lost ever there. You see, Henry, Henry Michel said that was lost prior to 1947 as the people settled in, as they enjoyed their hymns of praise, but were not so much inter interested in growing the church anymore. You see, growing a church like took place in the early 20th century, late 19th century, took tremendous sacrifice. Do we have the love that it takes to sacrifice on that level? There's no evidence of that yet. 72 years later. I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, that I have to be so blunt. And as the second child in a family, it was always our responsibility as middle, middle children, those of you who can appreciate in, that in this office. You're not the oldest, you're not the youngest, you're in the middle. You and I are the peacemakers. We hate conflict. We want to make sure everything's peaceful. And yet, every fiber in me wars against what I need to tell you this evening. I need to point these facts out. They're not good things. I'm sorry to say, the last 72 years have been a downward ever how slowly, a downward spiral for our denomination. You know what happened when these people settled in? They stopped looking out at the world and in hope of saving those who were lost, and they began in settling in. Instead of looking out to those who were lost, they started looking at each other. And what did they see in each other? They began not to like so much. 
and confusion and bitterness and divisiveness started to settle in. And over the course of the last 40 years, we have unfortunately been dividing and dividing and dividing. What's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with the picture is we settled in. That's the start of it all. We settled in. We have to have a change of heart. We have to call out to a God who is amazing capacity to heal and to grow and to nurture and to counsel and to prod and to bleed. We need to reach out to him and ask him to put in our hearts a passion for the lost that perhaps in our century of time has never been there. I hate to admit that, but the evidence says that's true. Our heart has to change. Our prayer life has to change. How many prayers have we offered for those who are lost? How many petitions have we brought before the Lord? You know, there's a saying. It's not a scriptural saying, but I think there are bits and pieces of evidence that would suggest that it's not something the Bible can't support. And that saying is, God helps those who help themselves. It's nice. Scripture doesn't say it exactly. There's evidence that there's truth in it. But I want to tell you where the real truth is. The real truth is, God helps them who help him. God helps those who help him. Now that is truth. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of examples of that in this beautiful book. You see, we need to pray. We need to pray with effectiveness. Effective prayer means cooperation with God in the asking. When we pray for those who are lost, perhaps it's our children or our spouse, perhaps it's our neighbor, we are bringing a petition before him, asking him, please God, bring my children to the cross. That's a nice prayer. But let me tell you how to be effective in that prayer. Please God, bring my children through the cross, through my intervention as a mentor to them. Please, God, bring my neighbor to the cross as I mentor them and disciple them in the knowledge and growth of Jesus Christ. Now that's effective prayer. We can pray a long time for God to save someone, but if we are not willing to be the instrument of that message, I'm here to say your prayers and mine are not as effective as they should be and could be and would be. Your prayer life and mine has to change. We have to be engaged. When we pray a prayer, we must be able and willing servants to do all we can in the inspiration of God to bring that prayer to fruition. We are his hands and feet. We are his mouthpiece. We are his teachers. We are his preachers. We are the mentors of everyone that you have been praying for so diligently that they might come. And yet, you've not reached out your hand and say, come. You've not spent any time, perhaps, showing them the way, giving them the good news. Be an effectual, effectual prayer that you might be that instrument that 
works in cooperation with God to bring that to a blessed end. Our gospel, the gospel, and our doctrine is a beautiful thing. Changeless, changeless. However, the methods and means by which we distribute the gospel message must be effective. Sometimes, many times perhaps, when we have toiled all night, as Peter and the disciples were in the boat and the Lord called out, Children, have you any fish? Need to heed the Lord's direction, which was, Throw the net on the right side. Throw the net on the right side. And you'll find fish. You see, I have been preaching for nearly 37 years. And the Lord asks me, as I ask myself, Brian, do you have any fish? Insert your name. I asked myself that question. And about a year and a half ago, the Lord answered in an amazing way when he said, the other side of the boat, there's fish over there. A year and a half ago, a brother came to me in our church who has been every week, every week, down at the Phoenix Rescue Mission serving food. The Phoenix Rescue Mission takes in those who are addicted to substances, alcohol, drugs. Some of them have been released from prison and are now in a halfway house situation in the Phoenix Rescue Mission. This brother came to me, Brother Louis Green. He said, you know, Brian, we've had this relationship down there. I wonder if it would be okay if our church would be willing to preach there. There's an opening for us to preach there. So for the last year and a half, we are, every month that has five Sundays, we go there, just men. This facility has 120 men, give or take. And we as men go there every month that has a fifth Sunday, and we preach, and we sing with them, and we pray with them. It's the other side of the boat. There are many other sides of the boat, brothers and sisters. Just look for it, pray about it, and God will provide it. He wants fishers of men. Two weeks ago, we were there. That was the most recent time. We went down with 10 or 12 of us, men and young men, very young men, some of them maybe 12, 13, 14 years old, all the way up to Brother Louis, who's, well, he, I'm not going to tell you how old he is, but he's older than me. Let's believe it at that. And I'm in the senior class all of a sudden. I mean, the oldest group in here. I'm in that one. It's still stunning to me. I've graduated. <laughs> wow. So there we are. We're having a wonderful evening. But I'm here to tell you it's different. It's not in my comfort zone. It's not in maybe anyone's comfort zone of us from the Apostolic Christian Church Nazarene in North Phoenix. But I'm here to tell you that the Lord is doing amazing things. Not just for the 120 men, but for those of us who go and have the opportunity, not just to pray, but maybe even more importantly than anything else, is to pray with these men. Two weeks ago, well, let me back up just a second. 
Every time we've been there, and I mean every single time, I have men who come up and search me and other brothers out that, were, that are in this environment and ask us for prayer before we leave. And I mean every time I've been there. Do you know the last time someone in my church came to me after service and said, would you pray with me? Well, I know you don't know because I don't know. But two weeks ago, after a beautiful and inspiring evening, and these men love to sing really poorly, but they love to sing, and they are loud. And at any moment, at any moment throughout the program, you could hear a praise Jesus. You might hear a hallelujah. You might hear applause. Two weeks ago, the brother in charge, as he finished up, invited those to come forward in need of prayer. This time, I stayed seated because I saw one of the most inspiring things I have ever seen. Fifteen men watched, walked down the center of the aisle and they stood in line until every single one of them got to pray with the brothers in front. I was so amazed. I sat there speechless and thought, I just need to watch. I just need to watch these desperate men who have not a penny to their names and a home that they cannot go back to. These desperate men are beautiful fish and they're diving into the net. God has given us the other side of the boat. And we don't go there to change what they're doing. If they need to praise Jesus and lift up an amen and a hallelujah, it thrills me now. It takes some getting used to. I will admit it. But it is an incredibly beautiful thing. That is their experience. That is their culture. That is their understanding. And they are praising God. And I praise God with them. I would like to read a few verses in Ezekiel chapter 37 as it relates to where we go from here, how we engage ourselves in the true work of spreading the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and the words that you're going to hear as I read. You're going to wonder for a few minutes, what in the world does that have to do with the subject? Let me read it nonetheless. Listen carefully and go with me in this experience with Ezekiel. Take the words in. View what is being described. Close your eyes if you have to, but put yourself in the hands of the Lord as he leads you as he led Ezekiel in this matter. Listen. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the valley And lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again he said unto me, Prophesy unto these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. 
So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, and there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. And so I prophesied, as he had commanded me, and breath came unto him, unto them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Do you believe this is possible? For God to bring us to a place of dry bones? And he asked us the question, can these bones live? Do you believe? I believe. We are not dead. We are dormant. We are not dead. But in the case of evangelism, of building a church, we are most certainly dormant. But if God can bring about dry bones together, he can take these 2,900 that are left. He can use those 2,900. He can bring these bones back together. He can make us work together. He can put flesh on us. He can give us a new heart of love and compassion for the lost and tolerance and forbearance with each other. If he can do this for dry bones, he can certainly do it for those who are living. Dormancy is a temporary state. We look at those things that are called dormant, and most of the time, we these days, with more volcanoes erupting right now, at the same time, more than ever before in the recorded history of the world, there's a reason for that. We refer to these volcanoes that are not erupting as dormant. The good news is, when the pressure builds, those, that dormancy is unbelievably blown away. I believe that we can pray that the winds of the Spirit of the Lord, that hearts can be made hearts of compassion and love for the lost, that we can be and that we can have the dormancy blown away. I'm amazed at how many times in looking at the Old Testament and the amazing stories of valor and victory by so many prophets and mighty men of God who when approaching the battle scene looked to the Lord for guidance as to what they should do, how they should fight, when they should fight. How many times were they undermanned and undergunned, as we might say today? How many times did the Lord say, hey, there's too many of you. 300 will do. Defeat an army. God's an amazing God. Who can do with us amazing things if we enter into a cooperation with him? <clears throat> Where to start? Do you know there are 183 teenagers standing before you tonight? 183. 25 are converted. Now, if that isn't a white harvest, I don't know what a white harvest is. I want to read a couple references that refer to the harvest. In St. John, chapter 4, verses 35 and 36, 
speaks to this issue of the harvest. Listen to these first few words. Say not ye. Say not ye. There are four months till harvest. He's not speaking to the lost here. He's speaking to those who should be harvesters. He's saying, you harvesters, don't tell me there's four months left to harvest. Don't tell me you can delay four months to the harvest. He goes on to say, and then cometh the harvest. When you say there are four months left, what kind of knowledge do you have? When you say you can procrastinate talking to your child or your neighbor or your coworker, who says you have four months left to get it done? I'm not at all sure that we will be here as a congregation in four months' time. I am not at all sure. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. Brothers and sisters, those of you who have children who are standing up here tonight, that is your white harvest. That is the fruit on the lowest hanging part of the tree. That is there to be reaped, to be harvested right now. If you are not immediately engaged in speaking and counseling and mentoring and discipling your children, how are you going to answer to God? Sadly, I need to give you some examples of my concern on this matter. I have in recent times had multiple conversations with young people who described for me their converted parents. Apparently, according to those testimonies given to me, showing no interest in the salvation of their children. I asked a particular brother once, have you talked to your child about his or her salvation? The answer was a two-letter word. No. I said, I think you better do that soon. 15-year-old teacher came to me this week. He asked the 15-year-old class, do you believe our denomination is doing a good, going and saving the lost? And the resounding answer was no. The 15-year-olds. That was followed up by another question. Have your parents showed the interest in you that would fulfill this issue of going forth? And they said, no. I'm just reporting. I'm just reporting. We can do better. We must do better. We have to do better. We will all give an account, beginning with this one. How many fish have you fished? Where did you fish? Do you have fish? Do you care about fish? Do I care about fish? Do you believe that he is worthy of your best efforts to save his kingdom? There was a time, there was a time when I was concerned about this issue. Brian, you've been in the ministry, now eldership. You know, we're talking about fish. The denomination is shrinking. What are you doing? What are you doing? And to salve my conscience, I came up with this analysis. Oh, look at us. 
We might be small. But we are serving various and sundry national, ethnic, cultural backgrounds. We serve a niche. A niche. And in a heartbeat, the Spirit came to me and said, My kingdom is not a niche. God, have mercy. Have mercy. Is he worthy? If he is, go. Just go. Heavenly Father, your call went out tonight powerfully. Forgive us, Lord, for settling. For so many years for settling. So often, Lord, we fish from the wrong side of the boat. We seek out calmer waters. We don't want to fish on the side of the boat that more fish can be found. And we pray that you'd forgive us for that. Stir in us, Lord, a change. Stir in us a desire to keep our eyes on you. Show us, Lord, places in our lives, each and every one of us gathered here. Show us where we should start harvesting. We're thankful, Lord, for opportunities to gather and to hear your word powerfully preached. We're thankful, Lord, that sometimes that message makes us feel uncomfortable. We're thankful, Lord, for your truth, for your mercy, for your salvation. Give us a desire, Lord, to share that with others, not to keep it to ourselves, not to settle in. Help us, Lord, to reach out with our eyes on you continually. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.